Father. So many precious promises from our Lord Jesus. Such a beautiful picture of him as the good shepherd for us, your flock. I know that my own mouth, the words that I have written down are not worthy of the Lord Jesus, our good shepherd. And yet, Father, your word, your word is right and true and powerful. So would you now speak through your word? Would you impress upon us the image of the good shepherd Jesus so that we might trust him and find the abundance of life he promises? We pray this all in his mighty name. Amen. Beasts of England, beasts of Ireland, beasts of every land and clime, hearken to my joyful tidings of the golden future time. Soon or late the day is coming, tyrant man shall be overthrown, and the fruitful fields of England shall be trod by beasts alone. That's a song of rebellion in George Orwell's Animal Farm. Maybe you had to read it in school along the way. The pigs plan a revolt that promises to unleash prosperity and abundance for all the farms of the animals. They'll kick out the humans and the fields will be theirs and theirs alone. Only as the story goes, the pigs take everything good for themselves and leave the rest of the animals in their misery. The line that's most famous from that book, all animals are equal, some are just more equal than others. Orwell was writing a scathing critique of communism in his day, of Stalin promising abundance and prosperity to his people, only to turn around and unleash misery. 3.9 million Ukrainians starved to death, untold other horrors. Now, that's not the only time government has run amok promising prosperity and giving us the exact opposite. This next week will be 30 years since the massacre at Tiananmen Square in China. Have you noticed how often kings, party leaders, even presidents promise us the world and then don't make good on their promises? Oh, it's not only true at the national level, it's also true on the individual level, isn't it? Self-help gurus tell you if you feel better about yourself, if you treat yourself more kindly, if you practice positive thinking, then you will live the good life. You can even find TV preachers that will promise you for the low, low price of a certain amount of money, then you will have spiritual life. So many promises of abundance, and no one comes through. It's against this backdrop that John 10 is such good, good news because it tells us of a good shepherd, a leader that God has sent before us that actually makes good on his promises, that brings us into the truest sense of life, spiritual abundance more than any heart could ever imagine, Jesus himself. Only Jesus can give us the fullness of life we crave, because only Jesus is God's chosen shepherd. That's what this passage is about. It's a very famous passage. Maybe you know of the good shepherd passage. This is where this comes from. It's really a set of metaphors painting a picture for us of this good leader for God's people, Jesus. 
We'll move through it in three sections, three areas, three ways we'll see how Jesus is able to lead us to this abundant life the way no one else can. The first in one through six, we'll see it's because Jesus is the shepherd who knows us. He's a shepherd who knows us. Second, in 7 through 10, we'll see it's because he is the shepherd who nurtures us, who nurtures us. He knows us, and he nurtures us. And then in 11 through 18, finally, we'll see all of this is on the basis of the fact that he is the shepherd that died for us. That the reason he's the good shepherd is that he died for us. Let's begin in 1 through 6. The shepherd who knows us. Now, at the very end of our passage in verse 21, we get a clue that we're actually at the end of a block of text that goes all the way back to the beginning of chapter 9. Look at the last verse there, verse 21. Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? If you were with us last week in chapter 9, uh, Chaplain Hoyt uh, preached about how Jesus did the miracle of opening the eyes, of, of healing a man that was born blind, an unheard of miracle. And the great irony in that text is the people who should have been most spiritually discerning, who should have seen most spiritually clearly, the religious leaders, they refused to see the miracle Jesus did because of the implications of it. Instead, they kicked the man out of the synagogue and rejected him. Well, that runs all the way through to the end of, uh, of our passage this morning, uh, verse 21, as Jesus is going to describe his own leadership as a shepherd over God's people as a sheep. So there'll be this back and forth. Jesus will describe himself, and then he'll contrast himself with these leaders that are, are not living up to their calling as God's uh, spiritual leaders over God's flock. Now, this is not the first time in the Bible that leaders will be described as shepherds and God's people will be described as sheep. In fact, it's one of the most common metaphors throughout the whole Bible. You can think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. We are the sheep. God is our shepherd in that case. You can think back to Moses and Aaron being described as the shepherds over the flock of God. That would be the nation of Israel. You can think of David himself being appointed as the shepherd that is the king over the nation of Israel. I think the passage is probably most the backdrop against which Jesus is, use, uh, is using here in, in John 10 is Ezekiel 34. So if you have your Bible, flip open Ezekiel 34. It's an extended passage where God is denouncing a, a series of spiritual leaders who have failed to do the work of caring for his people. And so God is denouncing those leaders while looking forward to a day when he will correct this and bring another shepherd over his flock. Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 2. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. It paints a horrible picture of people using power for their own gain 
Instead of leading God's people the way they should be, it'll culminate in God saying, prophesy, I the Lord am against the shepherds of Israel. The solution to all this comes in verses 15 through 16. God says, if you will not be faithful shepherds, then I myself will shepherd them. In verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. Well, that's easy enough to understand. God will do what they failed to do, but there's another thread that's really important. God himself will shepherd, but he will do so through another shepherd whom he will appoint. Down in verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I The Lord will be their God, and my servant David shall be a prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So at this point in the history of God's people, there has been a a series of spiritual leaders that have failed again and again and again to care for God's people. And there's an expectation that God himself will fix this by sending a single good shepherd for the flock of God. This brings us to John 10 verse 1. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way. That man is a thief and a robber, but the one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus starts with a metaphor here of a shepherd that is identified as the real shepherd because of relationship. He's a shepherd that is known. Now, the metaphor that Jesus has used is a little hard to wrap his head around. He's going to use a a series of metaphors that are loosely connected to each other. It's not like a story. It's like generally about ancient shepherding back in the day. And each of them will paint a little bit of a a one picture of Jesus as a shepherd. This first one shows a, a, a shepherd coming to a sheep pen that is established with someone guarding the entrance. Uh, back in those days, if you had a flock of sheep and you were near a city, you probably used a common sheep pen. That is, you would put your sheep in the same pen that a bunch of other people with flocks would put them in just for economic reasons. There would be a well-built wall around it and an entrance. And then because there's so many of you with sheep there, you could afford to have someone stand guard. Now that meant that not just anyone could walk into the sheep pen and grab a sheep and go off and have dinner. You would only be let in if the guy at the front, the guard, knew who you were. If someone was let inside, it's because he had a right to be there. On the other hand, if someone was up to no good, they would hop the fence and get inside without the gatekeeper knowing. It's a bit like how you get into your house You know, maybe you have a key to the front door or maybe use a garage door opener. But if you saw one of your neighbors shimmying up a a drainage pipe to the second story and prying at the window, you would think that person probably does not belong inside that house. Well, the implication here is Jesus is the true shepherd and he is demonstrated to be so because he's known. He's known by the guy at the gate Jesus came from the very instruction of the Father along the way, and that means that God's people will recognize who he is. He he unfurls the metaphor even more in verses 3 through 5. Not only is he known by the gatekeeper, but he's known by the sheep, and even more than that, he knows the sheep. In verse 3, to him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, 
and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he brought them out, when he brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. The way shepherds got their sheep out from this common pen, they wouldn't just hop into the pen and start trying to pick one sheep at the other under their arm or something like that. They had a much more elegant solution. They would stand outside the sheep pen and they would call out a call that they would do over and over again in kind of a sing-songy way. It was a, a familiar sound that the sheep would know from their shepherd because they spent day after day, hour after hour together. They hear this familiar voice and the sheep come marching out one by one. Today, modern shepherds, they drive sheep from behind. They use sheep dogs and whips to move the gathering of sheep the direction they want to go. But an ancient shepherd would walk along in front using his voice to guide his flock along the way. Now that only works if the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. And that's the image Jesus is going for here. The flock of God follows Jesus because the flock of God knows the voice of Jesus. Notice verse 5 tells us that they won't fall for anyone else trying to impersonate the shepherd. Verse 5, a stranger they will not follow, but they'll flee from him for they do not know the voice of a stranger. They have ears that are attuned to their shepherd so much so that when their shepherd speaks, they follow him wherever it is he may go. Now, notice one little detail in there that could be easily lost. It's that the shepherd actually knows each individual sheep. Notice in verse three, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. That means every single one of his sheep has its own name. He knows every single one of them. It's not just sheep one, sheep two, sheep three. It's fluffy and gimpy left leg. You know, it's, he has pet names for each and every one of the sheep. And that means the shepherd actually knows the sheep that are in his flock. Now, friends, when we think about this picture of Jesus as a shepherd that knows his sheep and whose sheep know him, think about what this does in your heart. It means you are known by Jesus. You didn't sneak into the flock of God when he wasn't looking. You didn't get in on the family plan. It's not an accident if you were a Christian this morning. Oh, there may be times where you don't feel like you live up to a life worthy of what it is to be a Christian. And yet none of that is lost on the shepherd that is caring for you, Jesus. He knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. Realize that also means that you are able to hear his voice. Now, it doesn't say here the sheep strain to hear his voice. It says they hear his voice and they follow him. It's an assumption that a sheep will know the voice of his shepherd. Now, it's not a given that every voice that someone hears is something that they should follow. There's a story recently about a yoga instructor in Hawaii that went out for a walk in the woods by herself and got lost and ended up stranded for 17 days before she was finally rescued by a helicopter. Uh, thankfully, she's no worse for the wear, just minor injuries and things. 
But when she got back in the hospital, she gave interviews and explained how it is that she got lost. And frankly, it's, it's pretty chilling. She said this about this. I don't really know what happened. All I can say is that I have a strong sense of internal guidance, whatever you want to call that, a voice, a spirit. Everybody has a different name for it. She would go on to tell in another article how she would listen to the direction of this spirit, told her to turn right, to go down this stream bed, to go left, until she was hopelessly lost. She even called out in despair to this inner voice, pleading to lead her back, but it never did. Friends, your own heart can lie to you. There are certainly spiritual beings that would love to lie to you. Just because you hear a voice, spiritual seeming or not, does not mean it's one to be heard, one to be followed. And yet the promise for believers here is that we will hear the voice of Jesus. And that voice is what he will use to guide us where we need to go. So how is it as believers we're supposed to deal with this? Well, let me suggest to you that the familiarity is the key to all of this. That if you want to know that you are actually being directed by Jesus, you need to have the sort of relationship described between a shepherd and a sheep. The shepherd and the sheep spent so much time together that their vo- the shepherd's voice was unbelievably familiar. Friends, we don't have Jesus physically here on the earth with us but we do have the word of Christ. You have a Bible. You may be wondering, how it is can I know if the Lord is leading me a particular direction? What is God's will for my life? Let me tell you, the first step along the way is to be so saturated in the word of God that when a thought enters your heart or your mind, you'd be able to say, that sounds like something Jesus says. Or maybe that doesn't sound like something Jesus says. We need to be so close to Jesus in our personal devotions, in our reading of the Bible, that when he does those exceptional things in our lives, like putting before us a particular step of faith or directing us to go do something, that we know his voice and there's no doubt who is leading us. One of the great reformers, uh, John Knox, He was a a man who was deeply devoted to Christ after he became converted. He was reading his Bible and digging deep into it. At this point, he was not in ministry. He took up uh, refuge in a castle because there was an army that was trying to get a hold of him and uh, kill him. And so he's stuck in this castle. And while he's in there, a group of people come to him and ask him to become their pastor. Now, he, with much fear and trembling, uh, very much did not want to do this thing. Uh, he didn't feel called toward ministry in, uh, in that sense. And yet he was walking so closely with Jesus that over time he recognized the voice of his Savior in this request from this congregation. He became their pastor. Eventually he would go on to become a great spiritual leader that has benefited us through his work within the Reformation. Brothers and sisters, uh, <clears throat> the best thing you can do is be so familiar with the Jesus in your Bibles, that when you're struggling with a decision or which direction to go, you'll be able to say, this sounds like Jesus, or this doesn't. Now, in verse 6, we see that as is so often the case, even as well as Jesus teaches things, people don't understand. Verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus now shifts the metaphor 
and is going to show, show us another shade of him as this great shepherd that we need. That brings us to our second point. The shepherd who nurtures us. The shepherd who nurtures us. How Jesus cares for us. In verse 7, so Jesus again said to him, said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus shifts the metaphor, and now, instead of being the shepherd on the outside of this this uh, pen, Jesus is now the gate of the pen. Now there is evidence in the ancient world that there would be some shepherds that would go to the opening of a gate and lay down in front of it and become a sort of human gate or human door to the sheepfold. It could be this is what Jesus is talking about, putting his own body in front of the door so that sheep can't go out and wolves can't come in to provide protection along the way. Uh, it could also be that Jesus is just referring to uh, a stone or a wood door. It, it really doesn't matter for the metaphor. The metaphor is how Jesus is the pathway or Jesus is the way you enter in to find two things, protection and provision. Jesus is the pathway to both protection and provision. You can find those coming out. You can see protection and provision both in verse 9. It says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. See, that's finding refuge or protection from God, the salvation of our souls. Jesus is the only pathway to find this sort of salvation. You see provision in the next part of the verse, and he will go in and out and find pasture. That is, you'll find all the food in abundance that you need. In verse 10, he contrasts that with the work of the spiritual leaders in his day. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. On the other hand, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. What Jesus is promising here is life in the truest sense, real living. Maybe you hear the promises of eternal life from Jesus and your mind immediately goes to a life that is extended further. Instead of your life ending when you die, there is an extension of your life that goes on into heaven. Well, that is true, but it's certainly not the only thing that Jesus means when he talks about eternal life. This image is not so much of the quantity or duration of life. It's the quality of it. It's abundant life. It's life on top of life. Life that flourishes so much that it it just overflows. Jesus here tells us that what he is offering is true living to anyone that would enter through him. Have you ever seen one of those videos online of a child born deaf that gets one of those implants and hears for the first time? See the look of delight on their face? Oh, they were living before, but there's a whole nother level of living they're experiencing now. So it is that anyone, for anyone that comes to Jesus and finds him to be their shepherd, we find that we're truly living for the first time. He fills our life with joy and peace 
in an intimate knowledge of God, both being known by him and knowing him ourselves. Jesus gives us blessing upon blessing upon blessing that truly is what we are made for. It is the definition of the good life. Now, on the other hand, there are those that would seek to keep us from that good life. The robbers, the thieves. In Jesus' day, these were the spiritual leaders that cared nothing for the flock of God, but they exist as surely today as they did back then. They seek to use any means necessary to keep you from this abundance of Jesus. They do that by redefining what it means to have true life. When I think about the different ways that we are prevented from finding this sort of life in Jesus, I, I think the most pernicious form of them these days is the promise of earthly prosperity. We already spoke about how this works out at the national level, where we become so concerned chasing after a sort of utopian dream that our hopes become in a government or a king or a politician or an army. And in so doing, we miss the provision of our good shepherd for our souls. It certainly also happens at the individual level. Self-help philosophies, even the thought of self-care. You know, it's good to get enough sleep. It's necessary. It's good to take care of your body, to make sure you get vacations every now and then. Those are good things from the Lord. And yet Jesus is the one that must define for us what is actually caring for us. Just because something feels right or it helps us to blow off steam does not mean it's actually this life that Jesus is giving us. We don't get the right to define what's right and good in our own life just because we are a person. Now, Jesus leads us into abundance. We don't lead ourselves into this abundance. I think the worst way this is being expressed these days is at the spiritual level. That's it through the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel teaches that if you have enough faith, even if you will cast out seeds of faith, maybe a monetary donation or some sort of act you will take, that God is obligated to give you material blessings in this world. That God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and influential in this world. And the abundant life Jesus is talking about is stuff here and now. Now you should thank God for your material blessings. And it's not wrong to pray about those things. But when we change the abundance that Jesus brings us into, into material stuff, we lose the good news of what this shepherd is giving us. He's offering us so much more than the stuff in this world. He's offering us forgiveness of sins, right standing before God, entrance into the family of God, and a joy and a peace that material stuff could never touch. There's far too many preachers that will tell you that God's will is for you to, to prosper materially. That's not the prosperity Jesus is talking about here. He's already defined what it is. They, they will enter through him and be saved. The good news of Jesus is that he is a shepherd that saves his sheep. Well, that brings us to our third and final shade of this shepherd that we see this morning. 
It is the foundation in which all these others are built on top of. The reason Jesus can make good on his promises to us to be the good shepherd is because he is the shepherd who died for us. Verses 11 through 18. I am the good shepherd. Notice Jesus does not say, I am a good shepherd. He's not just saying I'm a competent shepherd unlike these incompetent people. No, he is saying he is the fulfillment of God's promise to bring a Davidic shepherd over his flock. One that would not fail like every shepherd before him. One that would actually lead his people into lasting life. How is he going to do that? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Shepherds in the ancient world, it wasn't just a hobby. They did this for their livelihood. That meant if there was a predator coming towards your flock, it was, there was no insurance company that would pay for it if all your sheep got killed. A good shepherd would stand between a lion or a bear or a wolf and use his rod and his staff to fight them off, even if it meant maybe losing his life. You might think Jesus is saying, I am such a good shepherd, I am willing to fight to the death for my sheep. But that doesn't quite go far enough. Look with me at the ways Jesus talks about laying down his life. Verse 11, he says that he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And verse 15, he says, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life, then I take it up again. And then most importantly, verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. You see, friends, this is not a shepherd being overcome despite his best efforts to defend the flock. This is a shepherd laying down intentionally of his own will, of his own accord, giving his life to protect the flock. Now, at this point, the metaphor flat out breaks. A shepherd laying down in front of a lion in no way saves the flock. Once the lion's done with the shepherd, he's going to go after the sheep at that point. But this is where the true beauty of the good shepherd Jesus is seen. Because he accomplishes something by his death. He deals with the greatest danger that the flock of God has ever faced. Their blood guilt for their sins. See, Jesus is the promised shepherd. He is both God, the shepherd over the flock, as well as the son of David, the king of Israel, come to claim his people. He loves his sheep so much so that he is willing to deal with their greatest need by dying for them. Becoming not just their shepherd, but their sacrificial lamb. By going to the cross and giving up his life willingly. In doing that, he served as a substitute for our sins. His blood for our blood. That means that the people of God, the flock of God, no longer have the doom of their sins hanging over them. If they believe in Jesus, their sins are wiped away. They are fully forgiven. Their greatest danger, an eternity of the wrath of God, is completely wiped away. 
Not only does he serve as their substitute even to the point of death, but three days later he rises from the dead. He takes it back up, which means now he is a shepherd that lives forever. He's a shepherd that never sleeps, a shepherd that never grows tired, a shepherd that will never fail you because he lives forever. And now this Jesus is drawing sheep from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The reason any of us who are not Jewish are Christians is because this Jesus had sheep from another flock that he must draw to himself. He calls them by name and they come. You see, brothers and sisters, that we have good news of a good shepherd that has come and done what no other leader ever could, not even what we could do for ourselves. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I know that's a lot to take in, but I wonder, is something deep down in your heart, maybe even wishing that what I'm saying is true? Maybe you wish you could believe that. Let me suggest to you that maybe your heart is resonating like that because something deep inside of you is actually hearing the voice of this Jesus. Maybe he's calling you by name this morning. And for the first time, you can enter through him and come find the abundance of God. Come find the thing you were really made for, true living by knowing Jesus. And if that's you this morning, certainly come talk with me after the service. Uh, if you won't do that, find a Christian friend and ask them, how is it that I can know this shepherd Jesus that the preacher was talking about? Now, to all of us that are believers, we need to remember it's good news that we have a good shepherd and that we are not him. That we are under shepherds at best, but none of us are the good shepherd. Now, maybe you have a subset of the flock of God that you are responsible for in some way. Maybe you're a grandparent or a parent or a Sunday school teacher, or maybe you're involved in a ministry of some sort where there are some people that look to you for spiritual guidance. You are right to feel the weight of that, to pray, to plead, to do everything in your power to help them know who Jesus is and to find abundance of life, to, to even love them at cost to yourself. And yet recognize you cannot save them. You cannot die for God's sheep. Jesus is the only one that can do that. Pastor R.C. Sproul used to regularly tell his congregation, he would say, when a wolf comes around, you better hope you have a better shepherd than me. Now, Pastor Sproul was not in any way derelict in his duties as a pastor. He, he taught people well how to discern lies. He was not fearful. He would stand up to people. But he understood this truth. He was an under-shepherd. Ultimately, if the good shepherd does not call the sheep by name, he would not be able to do his job even as an under-shepherd. So maybe you're here this morning as a parent. Uh, I needed this medicine myself this week. Remember, your job is to be faithful, to be good stewards of the children God has put in your house, to pray with them, to plead with them, to love them, and yet to entrust them to the Savior Jesus that he might call them by name and they would respond of themselves. None of us can substitute for the good shepherd. We also need to remember that all of us need to find rest in the good shepherd. All of us need to find rest in the good shepherd. 
Maybe this week you've been feeling your own failures as a Christian. You've fallen into sin. You've become confused about the voice of your Savior. There's something that you deeply regret you've done this week that you wish you could undo. You need to rest in the fact that the, this passage, as it presents Jesus to us, is not telling us that it's up to us to stay close to the shepherd, that it's up to us to strain hard to hear him. This passage is about how the good shepherd cares for his sheep, and that's true for you this morning, no matter how you've arrived in this church. If Jesus is a shepherd who won't fail to lead, it's because he knows you individually, including the mistakes you've made this week. Jesus won't fail to nurture you because he loves you and wants you to have the fullest sense of living, true life in him. He won't fail to save you because he's already died for you. He's already given his blood for you. And you can know that you don't need any other source of life or joy because your shepherd Jesus is your life and he is your joy. Friends, who else can shepherd you like that? No politician, no king, no self-help guru, no prosperity preacher. Only Jesus. Only Jesus is the good shepherd for the flock of God. I'm going to read a very familiar passage. Psalm 23. I want you to hear it as your Savior Jesus, as he cares for you as one of his sheep that he knows by name. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray.